Hey everyone ever, and welcome to 20th Century Pop, the show where we try to understand the present while living in the past. My name is Tim Blevins, my co-host is normally Bob Canning, and this is technically not a full official episode of the show. Uh, We've come to the end of our second year, 2018, and instead of actually recording the episode we intended, uh, we're bringing you, via me, some lip service from past episodes of the year. Best of bits taken from the present of a show that is about uh, nostalgia from the past. So I guess sort of like a rerun, I guess. Uh, You can follow along in the show notes, you know, uh, if you'd like to know what episodes these excerpts are from. And I say that because with the song ending, uh, here they come. I wouldn't be surprised if there is like some sort of homage to the, the, the fair maiden in trouble and she has to, you know, it, it, it can't be as adventurous and masculine as the previous segments, you know, fighting a guy uh, next to airplane propell- propellers or going through booby traps or, you know, it can't be like that. It has to be a little more lighthearted because a woman's involved. Why, though? You're not a sexist movie. No, but I'm, I'm saying it's an homage. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody pointed out that that's how the women were treated. In those but why do that? Because they're are you going to pay homage to all the horrible race, racist stereotypes of those movies? I, are you going to pay homage to, to all the pro-war Americana of those movies? No, no why I'm would saying you that that's this? one of the things that they didn't feel um, was as negative as those other obviously grotesque things, and perhaps in their joy of those movies, in their own childhood recollection of those movies, they wanted to imbue the movie with some sort of segment like those but, i don't know because again but it I'm betrays just the character it's such a poor filmmaking choice from steven spielberg who by the way doesn't make a lot of poor filmmaking choices he's a master craftsman why is this crap scene master crapman when it comes to this Cairo scene well, i don't know i hear what you're saying george but lucas is involved even... as well george lucas wrote and directed star wars sure and the prequels well one of them yeah and he wrote and directed star wars I've also wrote and directed a movie, and it was crap. He wrote and directed the most impactive movie of my childhood. And he came up with some great ideas for these movies and chose not to direct this. He gets a good pass. Sure. He's done a lot. But people trash him all the time. Until now, when people are like, oh, we want George Lucas back. It's like, no, you don't. You just don't like Star Wars anymore, which is fine. Don't trash George Lucas because he's a talented filmmaker who did a lot of shit. And then Hollywood didn't want him to do anything but that again. Jesus. Poor guy with his big ranch that has its own <laughs> McDonald's, probably, I would imagine. He just sits in that. A replica of McDonald's that he sits on, like a fry guy chair, and just eats burgers and takes meetings with droids that he built. But I, I don't see why. Sorry, by the way, that wasn't necessarily directed at you. It's just I'm so, sure. everyone's. No, no, everyone no. goes back and forth on George Lucas to a point where it's like, he did this. He made your fucking childhoods happier. And he helped make this character. And I'm just saying, this um, is a... Pre- I, I, from what I know of this movie... There's no baskets in the prequels. It's a pretty um, personal movie for the two of them. Um, mm. Going back to they the... they both like hats. Going back to the, the movies that they enjoyed that inspired them as kids. And so I'm just saying, and again, this is just a hypothesis that I'm pulling out of my ass at this very moment... That perhaps this is a more lighthearted, out-of-place sequence because those movies 
which weren't directed by Steven Spielberg or written by George Lucas, um, had lighthearted moments with their uh, damsels in distress. And so perhaps they wanted to pay an homage to that as this entire movie is an homage to that. But they didn't. Like, they could have just made that movie. A movie, and I, I mentioned this you only because I recently heard of I mean, I, I don't... saw the movie. I know what they made. No, I know, but you they don't didn't, know. They didn't you keep making what I'm this... saying. No, no, no. I'm saying they didn't keep making that movie. They paid their little homage there. But the stuff that I love in this movie isn't homage, is, isn't an homage. The, the truck sequence, which is an amazingly exciting, probably the most exciting sequence in this film, yeah. bunch of stunts in a truck, in a truck. That that's not something we saw in those movies. That's not something you would get in a '30s movie. How are they going to do a truck stunt with that kind of camera work in the '30s movies? I'm, I'm, what I'm, I'm saying, saying is, I think they you have. could be I right about the did. Cairo thing. I think really? they did. I don't think it looked that great because you didn't have the technology, you didn't have the stunts that you could do it. But you certainly had a guy on a truck. There certainly had chases. I'm sh- no, no, no. <laughs> they I'm had saying, guys on trucks in the '30s. I'm saying that I'm sure that you can find a similar uh, sequence. Not as well okay. done. Sure, sure. Okay, I'm saying what, and I'm not. I'm not shitting on what you're saying. I'm saying what you are. You know, this idea of the Cairo sequence being a ma- an homage. We sidestepped a disaster of a movie then, because this whole movie could have been that homage. I I think you could be very right in what you're saying. I also think it was a misstep to put that scene in the movie. Sure, that's the movie's biggest misstep. Sure. Because it's not the music I want to hear. The music in that scene is ridiculous. <laughs> it's not the action I want to see. It's choreographed punches with flips and stuff. And like, I'm going to punch you and keep putting... Yeah, it's just, it looks like a dance. It's not the Marion I want. It really ruins Marion for a bit until she gets the guy drunk again. Like that scene just... That could have been this movie. And I'm glad that it's not. Because I think what you're saying is true. That's someone saying, remember these movies? This is how these movies worked. Everybody talked fast and nobody liked Germans or whatever it was. But it's like, we didn't just get that. We got something else, which is, I think, this truck sequence. Because I, I think the stunts in that truck sequence are some of the greatest stunts of all time. And I don't think that's ever been seen before. I think that's similar to the trench run in Star Wars, except it's a truck. I feel like this movie is remembered as a very endearing romantic comedy. Everyone loved, fell in love with Tom Hanks in this. Isn't it so great that he's showing this girl? That's the thing. It's like he's showing this woman how to regain herself. That's bullshit and manipulative. And I think you know that. I know it's a movie trope, but she's not allowed to be herself. She's not allowed to be her age or the person she wants to. She has to do all these kid tricks, kid games, yeah. flash and whatever, that don't ultimately mean anything because Josh is lying to her. He's not the guy that she thought he was. And he doesn't learn anything because he goes right back to being a kid. I agree with the first part of that. I think you can argue the second part. Yes, he goes back to being the same age, the same size. But I think it's implied that he's learned some things. Uh, but yeah, We're not given that. We're not given we're what not, he learned. We're not. It's, I feel like it's we're sort filling of that important. in now because we don't want to. We want to be able to sleep, you know, comfortably and be with ourselves because <laughs> otherwise it's weird. It is like well, you were asking I, me at the. Be- uh, well, I, I was asking you at the beginning if what I thought if, it was a romantic comedy. If, if, it's, if it's a romantic comedy and you and it's not for you, right? It's is it a kids movie? Is no, it I don't think it's movie? a kids movie. Who's it for? I, I, I don't see it as a kids movie. I, I considered, pri- you know, we were talking about this before, and I considered, oh, maybe my girls could watch this pretty soon. Uh, but no, I don't think it's a kids' movie uh, anymore. As as I'm watching it as a as an adult, 
Um, I think it's a dramedy. See, I loved it as a kid. Yeah, and I, that's the thing, too. I think they would like it, and all the other things that we've been talking about here would go over their head. Um, they would that's find the thing, yes. they would find the beginning stuff funny. They would find him playing around at a toy store amazing. Um, that would just that that'd be what they would come away with it from, with. Um, they might even turn it off midway, like I think I did a couple times. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, but to watch it for this fucking podcast. I, I this think is one of the worst movies we've ever watched. Worse than Die Hard Two. Yeah, like it's a I bad so. movie or it's a bad choice within this movie. Well, because that's I, what I get. Maybe that's interesting. I Die Hard Two knows what it is. It knows it's a bad action movie. This movie actually doesn't know what it is. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> or I don't know, you know what, what it is. What struck me about this movie, which um, kind of plays into this idea that it doesn't know what it is, uh, this is more of a artistic choice type of thing. I found the transitions to be really uh, off-putting. Um, they would go from... Wait, what do you mean? Uh, like, like I'd, usually a transition in a movie, you just you don't even notice it. It goes from scene to scene, uh, place to place. In this movie, I felt like scenes ended weirdly abruptly and cut to something completely <laughs> unrelated in sort of a, a quick uh, crossfade almost every time. Yeah. Huh. Um, like suddenly, do you think that's of the era, or do you it, think? That's no, that's what I was trying to figure movie. out. I was like, is this just the style? Um, but part of me thinks that, and like you're saying, there was obviously, and, and this is the case with most movies, but there are obviously other ideas in the screenplay. And part of me thinks that maybe, as they were cutting it together, it was just okay. Well, let's just stick this here and stick this here, um, and it didn't mm-hmm. flow the way it maybe had originally intended to. Um, and I, I forget why I bring that point up. I guess because the movie doesn't like like I get what you're saying about it doesn't know what it wants to be. It's a comedy. It's a fantasy film, a science fictiony fantasy film. Um, oh, you know what? Talking about learning lessons, I always thought <laughs> when I first saw the movie, it opens with him uh, playing the little video game, and you're mm-hmm. in the ice cave, and it says, "How do you want to?" What do you want to do? Or what do you want to do the wizard? And you want to melt the wizard. How do you want to melt the wizard? And he has to do like throw a thermal pot or something at the beginning. But he can't do it because he's a kid yeah. and he's got to take out the trash. He finds the game <laughs> later in the movie. And he I pops it in. It. And I thought right here. And even as a kid, not knowing much about filmmaking, even as a kid, I was like, oh, here's where we learn the theme of the movie. Well, how do you <laughs> want to melt the wizard? And I did, you know, as a kid, I thought he would type love or he would type, you know, who who knows what. But whatever he learned is what he should have answered. And he finally got to type throughout Thermal Pod, which isn't really something I tell my kids a lot. So it's like, yeah, the movie's kind of all over the place with what it's trying to do. And I kind of think now that we've talked about it and talking about of, of the time and of the era... I feel like I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody had this cool coming of age story and somebody in a room said, well, but you got to have a romance. There's got to be a romantic situation. So how do you, and it's almost mm-hmm. like maybe they threw it in there because that's what you need. You have your when Harry met Sally's, you have your, I don't know what else from that time period, uh, romantic movies, everybody's going on dates. You, you got to get a, uh, there's got to be some sort of relationship in there. 
Because you don't need it. But you know, like I know, the screenplay isn't the movie. The movie is what we see. Mm -hmm. Screenplay is part of that. So yes, what you said is true. Someone did make that suggestion and it happened. And that's what we're given. And it's just... No, but I'm wondering if if the screenplay, if the person... I don't know who wrote it. I... This Oscar-nominated screenplay, this, by the way, Big was nominated for Best Screenplay, wow. Best Actor, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Bad Touch. <laughs> um, but maybe that wasn't it even... cleaned up at the Injunction Awards. <laughs> I'm just curious if it was even a major part of the original, you know, first draft, second draft. Yeah, I don't know. And I would be curious because, again, there's a story in here. I mean, there was a story that we see, but I think what you're saying, like there, Josh and Billy's relationship as friends is fascinating. And as a kid was what I was most interested in. The scene where Billy tells Josh off has always stuck in my head, partly because it's very odd in a PG, PG rated movie, and especially this one, to have your 13 year old actor say fuck, yeah. which he does. I think he calls him a fucking idiot or something. You know, the idea of knowing what a movie is at any age, it's big. It's on yeah. a huge screen. It's loud. And it's something out of the norm because we didn't go to the movies every day. So the anticipation to see any movie was always so huge and so exciting. So when you add to that, here's the truck that is also a man that you like, or here's the lightsabers you enjoy, or here's a cape and cowl. When you add to that things I already knew that what they were, you know, all five of these movies were because there were things I was already into just getting a bigger screen treatment. That's true. That's true. I don't think that's commercialism. I don't think it's bad. I know we're in an age right now where that dominates the cinema, pre-existing ideas being made as movies, but maybe this is why. You know, I find in them some solace of whatever it is I love is now for two hours bigger than anything in the world. And I love it. And I miss this feeling. I have it in smaller doses, but I don't have the all-encompassing, misremembered childhood excitement right. of the blockbuster. <laughs> Let down. I'm hoping, I, I'm hoping I get, I mean, it's going to be totally different. But there's, in a lot of ways, I hope I have um, my kids to sort of live through with some of these things. Because I'm, as you're talking about, it's like these are our existing characters and existing um, um, franchises that we are, we're anticipating the next chapter of. Um, I don't see that with, with the movies my girls are watching. I, that's not really what's happening. It's, it's an introduction even if it is like Christopher Robin, that's still well. Actually, no, that's not true. They're, they they have a hint of Winnie the Pooh. They have a hint of the Teen Titans. They have a hint of these things. Um, but I do. I I look forward to those moments where we can really both, as a family, as as a father and daughter daughters, uh, anticipate going to the movies together. I mean, this is still an era where going to the theater is unobtainable. You know, in my mind without parents. So to go without parents means what What the fuck? How did I get here? This is amazing. I'm in this environment. The movie theater is an environment and I love it. I loved it then. I, I still love it. I wish it was as magical. Sometimes I wish it was as trashy looking as it used to look with the uncomfortable seats, the peeling stuff on the wall, the grossness of how the posters are hung, the not great projection. Obviously, I don't because I love the crisp projection that $20 buys you. 
but there was something about still it's like it's a shit box that we're sitting in but it's air conditioned and it's got monster squad playing it's got la bamba playing it's got masters of the universe playing it's got whatever is on that big screen godzilla 85 sorry you didn't get to see that (laughs) you know what neither did i but that that's what i'm saying i'm sorry you didn't get to see that yeah (laughs) oh okay I'm fine not seeing Godzilla in 1985. I do. (laughs) And listeners, you can hear the story. I forget on what episode now. I'll do some (laughs) research. But yeah, I think summer blockbusters of the 80s, I'll never have an experience like these five movies again because I know too much of how the world works or I know what a movie is or I'm just older. And you don't get this when you're older, you know? Yeah. My favorite things of all time are from the past. It's very hard for me to name something that came out last year that's my favorite. And yet... Pretty my, difficult to name something you love from the future, too. It's hard. That's a hard one. I mean, I've got a few things on my mind, but I don't I don't know. I don't know if the Vivian girls are gonna break up on all their three solo albums. I really don't. Uh. <laughs> because you do, you invest in that. You put time and energy and effort into that, and then you get to that part and then that means something to you, and you have a reaction to it, you're emotionally invested, you have that big sigh, and it's over, and you either are happy or sad, and that's invalidated when it all comes back, and it's like, no, you, you shouldn't have had those feelings because this didn't actually happen. And so it does kind of play on you but a little bit. But look how tightly I'm, cl- yeah, but how tightly am I clinging to this fictional piece of work that I'm allowing the fictional work to tell me this one piece of the fiction never happened? But that's what, that's, that's what we expect fiction, we want it to, in that moment, we want that fiction to be real and true to us. And mm-hmm. it's okay if it pulls the, the wool over our eyes for a purpose or changes the outcome for uh, an interesting story or an interesting reveal. But if it simply does it because it's like, well, we didn't, we're going to do it again. We're going to start over. So <laughs> let's ignore that part. Then, then it's like you've, you've lost me a bit. And that's part of why I haven't really returned to these shows because it's like you, you, you told mm-hmm. your story. You, you finished your story. Um, I'm not interested in what you have left to say. And, and for good or for bad, uh, some, it sounds like I'm missing out with Will and Grace. It sounds like that's doing it right. Um, I, I mean, I'm enjoying it, but I think what you're saying is interesting because I don't know how to deal with this because let me ask you. You saw The Force Awakens, right? I did. You saw uh, The Last Jedi, I did. Why did you go see those when Return of the Jedi wraps up the Skywalker saga? George Lucas himself has said the saga wrapped up. Well, he says with Revenge of the Sith. But Return of the Jedi ties up that story pretty neatly. Sure. To the point that the books that follow are sad because it's kind of like, nope, all this horrible stuff happened afterwards. So why did you return to something like The Force Awakens? Why could you go see that? Uh, because I think I think that's different because it set up a world, uh, a universe, uh, a cast of characters, but also uh, a style, um, a mystery, a mythical force, different weapons, a different place that you can put different characters in there and, and find interesting stories. Um, Yes, but they didn't just do that. Han Solo comes back. Princess Leia comes back. Uh, under, yeah, and, and what's his name? Luke Skywalker comes back. Yes, and they come back, and there is more story to tell. I don't think it. It. it I don't think like these uh, series. It 
changes or nulls and voids what happened, it continues the story. It fills in some blanks. It's like, well, what happened next is, you know, oh. Consolo dies. Princess Leia becomes a widow. Luke Skywalker never got the happiness of being a Jedi. All of these things, which are great and I enjoy, and I'm glad the story is going that way, but shouldn't I feel like from what you're saying, because I buy into it, shouldn't I have been hesitant to go see these things? Why? Sure. Because these... And it I think cha- we all it changes were the setup of that. I think we were all hesitant. Yeah, of course we were hesitant to go back. But was that hesitancy based on that, or was it based on the prequels? I think the existence of the prequels made people suddenly the, nervous for more certainly... stories. Whereas Phantom Menace, I mean, was there nerves for Phantom Menace when that was coming out? Did you ever have a second where you thought this might not be any good? Uh, and boy, were you proven boy, wrong. Was I proven wrong? Uh, no, there. Were, I don't think I did have any sense that this wasn't going to be uh, the Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace was going to be bad. I never thought that. It's <laughs> it's fucking Star Wars. It's going to be awesome. And it also takes place before it the takes place before. We I, I, so I, get I thought that. it would be cool. Um, and there are aspects of it I will enjoy, but yeah. Um, that crawl, man. That was an amazing crawl. Those letters, <laughs> they were going away from me, uh, but I thought they were in front. That yeah, was until I awesome. started reading it. But anyway, going to the <laughs> sequels, um, my hesitancy was just I wasn't sure what story they were going to tell and how they were going to tell it. But I, I still was excited to see what happened next. So, yeah, maybe we had this, this moment at the end of um, Jedi where – Things were wrapped up and things looked like they were going in the right direction. But to find out that they weren't didn't take away from that. It's just like, That's here's true. the next story. So, yeah, maybe they did put the they're wool over. They're not rewriting Yeah, anything. they're not changing yeah. that that happened. It's just, here's what continued next. Whereas these shows are like, no, that didn't happen. Here's what's happening instead. We always know the hit maker in the terms of we know the main actors of a movie. Maybe we know the director. We attribute lines in Ghostbusters to the actor, not even the character, when it might have been a screenwriter who wrote it. With the music, we know the front person, you know, and when it's a band, we know the lead singer, and maybe we know the guitarist, but a lot of times, yeah, the rest of the band is kind of lost in the shuffle. And I guess what you're asking is, does that matter? And I, I kind of think it does. And how does that matter? What does it affect? Because I don't... Well, what does it affect? It affects our perception of how these things exist. You know, when people Mm. talk about the Beatles, they are actually normally, at least how I hear, talking about Lennon and McCarthy. (laughs) There's two other members of that band. And there's also producers. Did you purposely mispronounce McCartney? Did I mispronounce? (laughs) Yeah, you said McCarthy. More Curthy? I not per- I guess I've been doing that for some time. I mean, he's arguably the least noticed Beatle. And again, we should get out the Beatles, but but to talk about other bands, like like I, I and again, doesn't matter. But there's a mystification of the front person who leads the band. Sure, you know, Courtney Love in Hole, or um, see, I can't think of the names of anybody in Sleater Kinney because they're all kind of equal there, mm. or were until what's her name was on the on the on the on the, on the Portlandia, right. But I think it does matter because I think if we're gonna if we're gonna claim to be fans of this, if we're gonna be like this matters to us and we're in depth and we want to respect the artist, I love to say I love Guster. Yeah, you probably should know who's in it. Ugh. 
I probably should. I, but I mean, I also, I can't tell you who's in David Bowie's backing bands. Rick Ronson might be the name of one on Ziggy Stardust, but I can't actually tell you that. And I guess it matters because to know that might demystify <laughs> the lead singer a bit, but also because they did some of that work. Yeah, that's, I think I mean, uh, these greats are often forgotten. Like it's not sure. just whoever's straddling up to the microphone performing that makes these songs what they are. Right. And they get shout outs. It's like, I'd like to introduce you to the band. You know, that part. <laughs> yeah. You know, on drums, I forgot his name. <laughs> Bass, I think we have two. I'm, I'm, I'm pretending I'm leading Primus. But I, um, I, I feel like that, that should matter. And you're right. I don't know why. Because taking another step, I don't know every visual effects artist on a Star Wars movie. You know, mm. I, I know some of the designers' names, but not all of them who designed the artwork for Transformer cartoons. I did, but I forgot to now the name of the guy who wrote the songs for the Gem cartoon. Like these, you know, how much should we know? And that's a weird question, but I feel like I, th- I think with with a band, we kind of owe it to the band to know if we love it. And if, it, and if it's a consistent band setup, and if it's something we can figure out, yeah, we probably do owe it to that band. I got, other one. I got some work to do then. But I don't know, because it's like I'm thinking right now, like Liz Fair. I don't know her backing band. I don't but even see, know if it changes from album to album. But, but they're all playing on the album. But you're naming... How I know those songs. I keep cutting you off. Sorry. How I know those songs is from those albums. So I know what she's doing as well as what the other musicians are. But you're also you you're, Liz Fair, Liz Fair, Liz Fair, Liz Fair. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, with with Liz Fair, David Bowie, you're naming artists that are are basically solo artists. That yes, they've got backing bands, maybe that are okay, consistent. Echo and the Bunny Man, Bunny Man, The Cure, right? Um, better than Ezra. <laughs> Live. <laughs> Can you name any of the members of Live? Ed O'Brien, the newscaster. The author of RoboCop? I think Ed O'Brien actually is is the name of the, the lead singer. Of Liv? I think so. That's his I'm name, that Ed. Up. Ed I'll sings the song? right now. Ed <laughs> is fronting a band that meant something to four to five people <laughs> yesterday. Like literally yesterday, uh, four to five it's people. It's not O'Brien. Like, it is Ed, though. Really? That's not a very... Imagine if it was like Ed Jackson or Ed Bowie or, or or Ed Blondie. No, I. you're right. They're solo artists, so that's tricky. But it's like when I think of Guided by Voices, I can think of Robert Pollard. I can think of Tobin Sprout. And that's it. And there's other people who come and go in that band. They've all contributed. Right. And they're all there in the notes. And I guess... It comes down to, well, what is it to be a fan of something? If we're going to consider ourselves, like you consider yourself a connoisseur of music, right? You're a fan of music. That's your I'm a, thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say those are two different things, though. I'm a fan of music. I don't believe I could be considered a connoisseur of music. Why not? Because I don't know the names of the band members. Okay, so that's literally why. <laughs> so in Loggins in Messina, you could be a connoisseur. As long as it's an acoustic performance of Loggins and Messina. Sure. But then to bring up something like the Dance Hall Crashers, probably not so much. Because no. who was in that? Also, right. who? <laughs> that's that's also a good question. I, I've talked about missing out on um, 
discovering music when I was younger in, in middle school or high school. But I also regret not really discovering comedy albums oh. uh, at that age. Um, because when I got to college and met the likes of you and uh, Jonah and Brent and and Steve and all these other folks. <laughs> Names that you're dropping all, that no one knows. No one else knows, but you know. Um, well, they Brent's would, been on the show. So. Brent's been on the show. Um, but they would talk about their favorite comedy albums mm-hmm. and their heroes in comedy. And I didn't have that. And I, I, I regret missing out on that kind of thing because I think – uh, I think having that experience when you're younger, when it means more, it'll affect you more. Uh, mm-hmm. Something I uh, that I uh, am jealous of uh, for those of you that had that experience. I went up to him and I told him the story. I said, you know, I, my dad took me to this when I was six years old and it scared the hell out of me. And now it's my favorite movie. And without missing a beat, he looked at me and said, that's a counterphobic response. I said, what? He said, that's a counterphobic response. You know what that is? I was like, yeah, I know what that is. He's like, yeah, that's a counterphobic response. I don't know that's what really that word is. What does that word mean? And I didn't know what it was either, but I had to pretend I did because oh, okay. I'm totally awkward in moments. <laughs> I never want to talk to any celebrity because... No matter how much I'm into them, I am so awkward <laughs> that I'll say something stupid. And I never, ever do. I never get autographs, never do any of that. And this is living in Hollywood where you see people at a grocery store. But the um, I looked it up after. A counterphobic response is basically like you get, when you get scared, really scared of something as a little kid, um, you're, the way your brain forms connections, that when you get older, you get super into it. Hmm. Um, so... That, which is a really interesting psychological like process, property, I don't know what the word is, but the idea that I was so scared of it that it like formed this super connection to it that I kept getting drawn back to it um, is, is the idea that like the only reason I liked this was because I was so scared as a kid. Do you think watching and the TV show I, was an inching I, back towards it? Do you think that was part of that process, like when you found it on TV? I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. And this is kind of what I went through after he said that, because it like that kind of shook me a little bit because this movie is so important to me and it's it's my favorite movie. And I'm someone who came to Los Angeles to be a filmmaker. And this is a part of it. Um, And I love it. And with like, I really, truly love this film and think it really is one of the great films. And People, anyone listening might be like, that's ridiculous, it's a Star Trek film. But, like, it's about something in a way that any Hollywood blockbuster you ever watch is not. It's really about meaningful things that really stay with you. And so it really, like, rattled me that maybe it could all be a lie. Like, maybe I never actually was into this and that it was just this psychological response based on fear. And I kind of had to, like, live with that for a little while. And the more I thought about it, like, I could absolutely see that it was true, because I was drawn back to it as a teenager, a young teenager, like, out of fear. But I would still go out of the room during the scary part <laughs> that I knew was coming. That You know, even, like, in fifth grade, I'd go out of the room, which is ridiculous. Um, and now you watch it, and it's like, you know, it's 80s special effects. It's like a rubber... <laughs> thing with jello on it yeah you know, but you saw it at the right time then like, for it to hit you because as a yeah. kid that's frightening y- yeah it sounds it's like still a scary scene 
but it's also it's deflating the power of nostalgia a little is what it sounds like to me what he said calls into question absolutely yeah all these things we hold on to everything yeah and eventually what i kind of came to grips with was that like it may have been the reason that i got into it and if we were talking about you know friday the 13th part seven or something it would probably be the truth like if we were talking about some scary movie meant to be scary, but was maybe not a good movie. And if it was, if, you know, if I was saying that I don't, I didn't watch horror movies, but if I was saying Highlander three was my favorite movie ever, cause I saw it when I was a kid and got scared of it. I think it would be easier to say, well, that's ridiculous, but this is actually like a legit good movie. I still believe. And so I've chosen to believe that like, yeah, maybe it was a counterphobic response that got, me back into it and thank god because i love it so much see now why is it okay for us to we're talking about how we used to make fun of these people uh these fans these characters these these uh stars of this thing and we're, we're admitting that it's not the right thing to do that the whole point is to uh be okay with who you are and who they are and not feel ostracized or picked on uh, to be yourself. Uh, but we're still finding moments to, to poke a little fun. Uh, is that okay, Tim? Is that okay to still find the humor in these people? It, it, we're, we're bad people for doing it. We're shit we're people, people for doing it. it. I mean, is it fine? I mean, it's what, it's what we're doing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we do and it's unavoidable. No, that's not a good thing at all. Of course it isn't. It wasn't a good thing when we did it then because it's picking on someone the way I picked on poor Lenny, whatever his last name is. I'm going to say Kravitz, but it wasn't in school. No, it's shitty. And obviously necessary in some perverted, (laughs) gross way internally. I'm not saying necessary. It's a bad character trait. And I don't hear you doing it. So, you know, you're a good person. But yeah, it's, it's, it's my least... You know, mocking people is not I just, the greatest trait. Yeah, no, I just mocked that difficult. woman's hands. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. I, You're I, awful. I pointed You're out that woman's hands. No, but I am. Yeah. No. Why? Yeah. There's no way of saying that's good. It's not. And it's not like yeah. it's commentary on something. It's not like it's like it's 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 shitty because people are shitty. <laughs> that's we true. Did it, and we do it, and we're not above it. Did you did you laugh? Word. Did you laugh out loud? Because I just remember when we watched this, we would laugh and laugh and have comments to make and laugh. Watching it, did you you watch it alone? I did, sadly. Or, well, my cat yeah, was there, but I, yeah. I, I also watched it alone with a cat. Oh, um, yeah. Look at us. <laughs> Somebody make fun of us, quick. I think um, you just did. Spider Man didn't always exist as a bedspread lunchbox or. Underrue. At, at one point, he existed on a piece of scrap paper, and moments before that, as merely a conundrum needing to be solved. And you know, I doubt, as, as Steve Ditko sketched out the frightening and non-spider-colored appearance that deemed Spider-Man recognizable as Spider-Man. You know, I, I doubt that he was thinking one day this character would break box office records by looking like Tobey Maguire. You know, it was a drawing. That he did an interpretation of a collaboration between him and, and, and another name that needs no introduction, Stan Lee. He was the artist. Stan Lee was the writer, and, and they combined those talents to tell a single 
simple story that, that, that allowed this perception of a character to flip around in New York City. And you know what? That issue would have been it. Another random story stashed in someone's basement for a sick day. Just a two-stapled piece of pulp, yellowing with age. But the reality is there is value to that book, and a high financial one, as eBay can attest. But <clears throat> folded and battered, battered as that issue uh, may have been, the secret to creativity is hidden away inside that splash page credits box. Look, the reality that there is a name on that, that an individual put forth this drawing and that drawing went on to feed a whole issue and that issue spawned an ongoing series and the ongoing series found its way into our basement. I mean, maybe not that issue, but with that character, the fact that there is now a line of lineage tracing a single day home with a chicken pox back to a pen marked moment of initial artistry with a signature you weren't even seeing yet, that, that, that's actually important. That's wildly influential, and that is how childhoods are built. I mean, I don't think the creators matter to us as kids. When we first saw Spider-Man, it wasn't to learn who was penciling those poses or letter, lettering the dialogue. We liked Spider-Man because we liked Spider-Man. We followed his adventures because they were fun. You know, they're, they're colorful. And he had two amazing friends that if cosplaying was a thing in 1983 Connecticut, eight-year-old me would have been flicking bics and popping cold ones in a non-fitting yellow jumpsuit with red mask highlights. Spider-Man motivated us as kids to strike an iconic pose that we knew everyone knew, to hand jive an imaginary web, to, to flip our action figures around over a cardboard skyline, to to sketch out our own makeshift outfits while slinging clever quips both as quotes and originals. We exhausted ourselves, exhausted ourselves mentally and physically through the imaginary antics of this friendly neighborhood superhero. A hero that would not have existed if not for the chosen pen strokes of 1960s Steve Ditko. His slapdash, last-ditch, illustrated effort to starve off a canceled book turned out to be the most recognizable costume crusader this side of the one that wore a cape. I, I, th I wouldn't be surprised if you're misreading that cult standing. I think... You mentioned Greece. Greece has got its following because it's great. Greece too also has a following because it's terrible. I'm going to disagree with you there. Okay. I think, and maybe, and Greece too might be doing what Teen Witch fails to do. Greece too is liked by a generation after us. Greece too has been found by the generation after us. I don't know any of my friends, circle of friends. But aren't they finding it to... and enjoying it, ironically, just like you did with your friends watching Teen Witch to, I don't to know, mock it? Well, and I guess we'd have to have a millennial on a show. Um, a lot of what I hear about people liking Greece is because they – or Greece 2 is because they don't like Greece 1. Greece 2 reverses the gender of the roles and gives the female character, in this case, and I don't know the character's name, Michelle Pfeiffer's character is the lead, 
And so she's the proactive one. It's not about Sandy giving up who she is to win over um, John Travolta's character's name, which I just forgot, Danny Zuko. It's about someone staying true to themselves to win over someone. So I think there's a, a flip of that makes it more approachable. And I think they're finding it, but I think the reason they like it, yeah, isn't necessarily, I love Grease 2. It's like Grease 2 is a better movie than Grease, which I've heard about. So now I like Grease 2. So there's a different reason hmm. to build it up. But I think that's there because I, I've seen Grease 2. I saw it in the 90s. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was dumb. I thought I would <laughs> never hear about it again. And it's only in the last two years, maybe, that it's really it's come back somehow. That is a movie that achieved its cult status. And again, I, that's a good one. I, I think that's the reason how. But how did these kids find it? Because I don't know anyone of my generation who was talking about, again, my generation, yeah. but, you know, I don't know anyone who would have grown up when Grease 2 would have been a thing. I didn't I mean, even Grease... know Grease 2 existed until about 10 years ago. Really? Yeah, 10, 10 15 years ago. Oh, so I remember it on TV, probably around the time John DeVolta was having his second comeback with Pulp Fiction, because Grease was on TV, and so then they would show Grease 2. <laughs> but that's, an, I maybe we should watch Grease 2, I don't know, because that's something, that's another version of these things, I guess I'm trying to figure out, how do you... Not for everyone, but for you and I, who I think live, lived and continue to live our lives ingrained in this pop culture, you know, sphere. You know, I feel like in the 80s and 90s, I was plugged into what was on the radio, what was in the theaters, what was on TV. And it sounds like you were too, from what we talk about. So we know what's out. We know what's coming out. Even if we didn't see it, we know when it came out. How does something like Grease 2, which would have been the better topic for today probably, <laughs> or Teen Witch, how do those things not how do we miss them becoming the cult thing and how did we miss them the first time around like that's a phenomena i understand now because i'm not at the forefront of the pop culture minute i don't have my finger on the pulse of get out i didn't see get out and i you know and, and i hear about it and, it, and it's, it's this phenomena horror movie phenomenal horror movie and i didn't see it because i wasn't i wasn't there to see it. Harry Potter. I missed out on that because I didn't read those books, but you know, I guess I still knew it, but I'm just, I'm not plugged into the pop culture the way I was. So I can miss stuff now, but how do I miss two things from the eighties that are heralded as greats now? Grease two, I guess I can understand a little bit because it's not like it's our generation. Again, I don't mean to keep saying that, but just in the basis of when we experience things, it's a, it's people coming to it for different reasons, but teen witch the people who are making fun of the top that rap or loving it, the people who remember, who talk about it, and these people out there who are doing midnight showings in a stage show of it, they're our age, I think. So how does that happen? How does something suddenly become a cult thing? How do we miss that? And I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Well, I think what we're missing is whether or not it's a cult thing because they love it. Or because they love to loathe it. Well, it can be either. Like, what what are some cult movies that you love to loathe for you personally? Not like Plan Nine from Outer Space, unless that is one that you love to loathe. But but something that do you have those? Do you have the cult movies that you love to watch that are so bad? Um, I don't. Like, I wasn't expecting that question. I haven't really given that much thought. I mean, there's just in what we've been talking about, like Trolls Two comes up. But that's, again, that's a cult thing. It's not just me personally. What do I like personally? Have you seen, I've never seen Troll 2. I've just seen the documentary, uh, so I don't know I've the seen movie. Trolls 2 like four or five times. Really? Yeah, at gatherings, at events, at, at people having uh, bad movie marathons. 
Um, and that's how it happens. I guess, you know, like the room has done that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Birdemic does that. How does that start? I guess I'm just wondering, how does something become a cult in a group? Like who, somebody saw Troll 2 not to see it as a goof. And they must have brought it into the circle, brought it into the cult, the group, the, 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 the culture, whatever. Yeah. And it became this thing. Because it's like, I, you, you have to see this thing. I can't be the only one that suffers this, the existence of this. I guess. Is that, is, that what, is that how cults are born? I am suffering. You will suffer too. Here's the volcano throwing up books. By 1987, we'd gone to our first convention. It was a Star Wars 10th anniversary convention. And our minds were kind of blown by the fact that there were some people building a life-size R2-D2, building a, a, <laughs> a, a, you know, a screen-accurate sail barge model. That was happening in the 80s. Then. So that, that was, was 87 right there. And they had already been working on it. And then we just saw a, a whole other avenue <clears throat> to enjoy this. Uh, and still be productive and creative. And we started building all this stuff, cardboard cutouts of characters, a land speeder, a snow speeder, you know, <laughs> Jawa built around a mannequin, a Darth Vader built around a mannequin. And then we started studying photos and studying footage to be as accurate as possible. And, you know, I don't think we realize how many other people without being connected because there was no internet yet were also doing it. But you, you did see it in 87 then. Like, how old were these people who were building this? Stuff? They were older. They were, so I was, we were 12. I remember my, my mother and my uncle took us to that convention in Boston. We were 12, but the guys who had built that R2-D2, uh, John and Jim Youngsma, they were, it was, this thing was so amazing. We just never thought that anybody could ever do anything like this. This <laughs> R2 was like it had rolled off the screen. Um. So they were older, they were in their early 20s, and we started corresponding with them by mail, like pen pals, about how we could do this ourselves. Now, we were maybe 13, 14 when we started. So they were probably your age when they saw Star Wars. Yeah, maybe they had made a whole, I mean, this is they're kind of legendary in the in the Star Wars super fan world. They what had, are their names? John and Jim, they were twins, Yangsma, J-O-N-G-S-M-A. They made an entire Star Wars movie on Super 8 film all acted out, all the sets, all the costumes. And this was the late 70s, early 80s. So I always I always think of them as one of the, the first super fans. They were in their teens when they did it. And they really did a whole hour-long version of Star Wars with special effects. And this was all on film, too. It really, when we saw that, it opened up a whole new world of how you can be a fan as a teenager going into your adult years, this hands-on, creative woodworking, costuming kind of way to be a fan. That first episode, the Angel episode, I, I mean, I followed it and I, I got it. But again, yeah, I guess it it needed too much. Not too much, but it needed more than what we were given to make sense. And that makes sense when you're binging a show, but it makes it very hard to just casually get into a show and i think that might be excluding people who want to casually get into a show i mean some people watch sitcoms well, at this point casually. i mean you're, you're i mean I, I don't know i mean i had expressed interest in talking about this show so you pick this show mm-hmm. but i i don't i've seen as the show is 21 years old i don't know that this is one that you just uh casually get into it's one that you probably discover 
or somebody says, oh, you haven't watched that. You really should. You like this kind of thing. This would be right up your alley. I don't see somebody just going, do, 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 do. I'm casually going to flip into the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh episode of I don't know if Buffy. they would hum. That's a good point. <laughs> but I do think, but I think they're, I imagine there must be something or what happened to someone being like, you talk a lot about the show. I'd like to see an episode or two. Like, it's practically saying you can't just see an episode or two or something oh, no. anymore. No, I mean, you could. I, and if somebody came to me and said, oh, you talk about the show a lot, uh, what episodes would you rec- recommend? I would probably recommend several episodes like Hush and The Body and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, stuff like yeah. Surprise and Innocence. You recommend there- those, but uh, honestly... The, the at least the first two that you mentioned, they're so much better knowing everything yes, else. But I bet totally you can still get it. But, it, but again, it's like it should be s- able to be both. Uh, like you can enjoy some yeah. Marvel movies, but not all of them because they're maybe they're getting almost too interconnected. And I happen to love that because I like that topic. I like that. And I, and I like that they do it. I don't think every movie franchise needs no. to do it. But I just, it's, I. And I don't know when exactly it happened. Maybe Buffy was was one of the the pivot points. I do feel like a method of storytelling that I, prior to this, would have always attributed to comic books. Because I approached comic books as a kid as continuity. I know I said I could pick up random issues. But mostly, once I got into something, it was month to month and everything's connected. And that worked for comic books. Because you can read a comic book at your own pace. Prior to having these things on DVD, prior to them being on demand, when it's a show on TV and the pace is a weekly pace... I miss that feeling of being like I'm flipping around, something caught my eye. Like I've never landed on an episode of Supernatural and watched it, but I feel like I could, right? That is that a show that's oh, sure. tied up in continuity? I mean, well, it's I mean, it's 13 seasons in now, so yeah, you're pretty much deep into mythology, but the but the first season alone, you could you could you, you can sit down it was Monster of the Week. Um a lot of the a lot of the people from the Buffy and Angel world moved there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to get, um, in fact, I didn't start watching that show until season two. And that was because Bob and my mutual friend, Eric said, well, you love Buffy. It's the closest thing to Buffy on TV right now. And I was like, okay. So I went back and I watched it and I was like, Oh, why haven't I been watching this? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, but that was again, a friend of mine telling me you like this kind of thing. You will like the show. Um, but I, I didn't, watch it when it first came out and now i'm a huge fan i've been watching it now forever so but um but serialized storytelling you you prefer that maybe you like it you were saying it with the marvel movies that is something you like yeah i i like it i like it i I like standalone stuff too i i'm just i i like my csi like anybody else um you know it's like um i you know i like which csi because there's one in miami original there's one in philadelphia there's one in lebanon connecticut there's a lot of them there's only one csi oh is there see i don't even know (laughs) did you ever just sit there and just listen to music like put on music and just sit there and listen to it no yeah I mean, no, not often. I always felt like I needed to do something else. No? And um, a lot of times it would, I'll I'll be perfectly honest, this is going to sound nerdy, I guess, but uh, a lot of times I would juggle. So I guess that's me listening, just (laughs) listening, because I can't just lay there doing nothing and listening. So I would juggle and do nothing else. And when you're juggling, um, you're just kind of in a state where you're, 
you're not really concentrating on the juggling balls because it just sort of happens, it flows. And so you're just in this state of your, your mind is sort of blank. And so I, that always, I enjoyed listening to music when I juggled because my mind just sort of emptied. Bob juggled, <laughs> listeners. That's something Bob did. And, and that, but no, I mean, I'm I want to mock it, but I'm not gonna because <laughs> one, can I can't do it. it, and you can. That's a skill. I'm just, too. I'm just being well, honest. I think what you, you just said, and I think how you responded and your answer says something. <laughs> I think it's more than just an answer to my dumb question. It, it is how you're interacting with this music, yeah, and and how you're going through it, and uh, it 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 soundtracks a mechanical task. That's how you can listen to it. And that sounds like that's across the board. Like you couldn't really sit down and just listen to stuff. It, it, it had to be attached to something. I, I, I did. I would put on albums and just sit there. I mean, mm. some of my greatest memories. And it was, I guess it wasn't always that way because like I'd try to do something, but I would always be pulled into the album. That's how I got to know these things. Radiohead wasn't that because I was hearing them in the background of every dorm room that I had to walk the fuck past. The phenomenon that Radiohead became... I think that you're thinking of came with OK Computer. So why don't I like this because fucking that's... album? Why was I already tired of them? Is it the next song? Because you didn't... You didn't... Get, maybe? What's the next song? Bulletproof, Bulletproof dot, dot, dot. I wish I was? That's there. Yes. I think it's only two dots. Oh, really? So they did it wrong? What the hell is that? Two dots. Let that's, me find that's it. two-thirds of an ellipse. Yeah, two oh, dots. Stupid title. That's... I mean, this... But no, why? Why am I? Why was I already irked by them? Is what I'm trying to figure out. I like this. I couldn't stand this song. By the way, coming off of the Iron Lung song, you 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 had heard this song before, or you couldn't stand it now? No, just today listening to this album, I couldn't stand yeah. it. It's so spooky and experimental. It is the only song. I can't follow it. Yeah, it's the only song on the album that stays a ballad. Oh, huh. like everything else, either rocks from beginning to end. Or builds or has quiet loud moments. This one is just quiet. Uh, maybe I could tolerate it as an instrumental, but yeah, his voice ruins this again. Do you like this? I know I keep mm. asking you. No, uh, it's, it's, it's no, I don't like. I don't go to this one. I'll skip. But does it sound like time. Radiohead? Like, do you think people were liking something? Like, I just I want to know why was I so already set on being adverse and not liking this band without really knowing them? Why was that? Am I shallow and dumb? Am I suppressing something? Am I creating something? Like, what? I do you remember me not liking Radiohead? Was that a thing? Uh, not during college, but I kind of get a, I have a sense of it post college. Like this episode? <laughs> no, like uh, like sixty one Selkirk. Okay. Post college. Yeah, I don't. I was not okay. So maybe I'm maybe I'm magnifying. Maybe I'm I'm misappropriating. Maybe it was still okay. Computer. I just. I went into OK Computer not liking them when it came out. Not that I listened to it, but knowing it was coming out and thinking, ugh, another Radiohead album. Huh. Then there must have been some people, because I really think it's people, that rubbed you the wrong way about mm-hmm. it. I, I'm realizing that to, to do this show, to put it up there, to put it out there, to, to, to make it, the, to, the, the cost of time to do it, which you may not be able to tell in listening to it, but there, there's time. Bob and I are on different coasts, so our schedules don't coordinate. There's a three-hour difference, so when can we record it? We both have our own responsibilities. When can we record it? When can I edit it? When can I get it up for the Thursday that's supposed to be up? All of those issues and all of those elements make it kind of hard to keep up the momentum sometimes, you know, because it's what? 
it's not a profession. I, I guess it's a hobby. And then that, that's hard because I want it to be more, but I guess it's something we do. It's a little thing we do. And it's important to me, you know, it's, it's, it's vital. It's, I, why is this the episode? What is going on, Tim? Are you, uh, it's not changing the world, I guess, <laughs> this podcast where we question whether or not when Harry met Sally is misogynistic. It's not altering the planet this weekly um, show where we wonder if Linus's mental breakdown and it's a, it's the great pumpkin. Charlie Brown was actually a scathing de- denouncement of Christian belief. It's not something that people come to hoping to learn and change, you know, the show or next week. I think we're talking about gum like hubba bubba bubble gum and bubblicious gum and bonkers as if it's a topic. I, I don't, I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know if this program and talking about our past is, 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 is worthwhile to anyone else. Is it just worthwhile to Bob and I, cause we get to talk and is it even worthwhile there? Bob has a life. He has things he does. I have a life. I have this microphone I talk into. I, I, I guess the show is, is acting as, you know, an example of, of, of the issue of, you know, what, what, what does it matter? What is it that's happening? What is a 43-year-old doing with his USB microphone and his slowly dying Mac computer, sitting in a chair on election night, avoiding watching TV coverage with a Dazzler action figure in his hand that he's fidgeting with while looking at a Matchbox Batmobile, name-dropping pop culture from his childhood like it matters. Thinking about how can I work in the title Bastards of Young like it matters. Wanting to make sure you know he's in the Ralph Bakshi with, I think, the second Ralph Bakshi reference of this episode because I recently got a book on Ralph Bakshi and now he's on my mind all the time. What? What's the point? What's the point? What is this need to indulge the pop culture, to embrace the pop culture? What is, what is it with me that the only thing I've got – the only point of reference I have, the only aspects of things that matter to me, the only way I know of conversing with the world, expressing myself to the world, somehow trying to interact with the world, all the only way I can do that is with the toys from childhood, the cartoons that I've watched since childhood, some of the movies. That's not even the main one unless we're talking Star Wars. And the music, because that's where I get the show. Look, I grown, grew a little bit. And this is what I listened to when I was in college. Why is that all I've got to connect? I remember this album coming out. I remember you had a framed uh, promotional <laughs> piece of artwork for this. I sure did. That you obtained. I had to, I had to go and obtain it. You had to go to a, what was called a listener's party, right? Yeah. I had to go to a listener's party for this. I saw it advertised in maybe it was the Boston Phoenix or something uh, that the first 25 people would get a um, exclusive signed poster of their new uh, release, The Master Plan. Um, And I had never been to whatever club this was. 
I remember I had to get there by bus. And I never I remember all of this. It sounded so <laughs> mysterious, but so big. I thought the band was going to be there. I thought there'd be hundreds and hundreds of people there. I thought, what is he doing? He's going into a drug den. <laughs> I'd never been there. I'd never traveled by bus in Boston. So I had to make sure I knew what I was doing. I got there and I wanted to be one of the first 25 people. I wanted this poster. So they were opening the doors at, I don't know, 830. And I was there at 715, you know, and I was and I was walking around. I was walking around the neighborhood, checking, you know, every once in a while, making sure the line wasn't starting to form. And, you know, as it's closer to eight. What neighborhood? Where was this? Where it was Harvard was it? Square-ish. It okay. was over in that direction. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was getting close to the doors opening. Still no line. I didn't really need to be there almost an hour ahead of time. Um I think two people showed up before the doors opened, including like uh. and myself. So there were three of us, and uh, we walk in, and they're playing God knows what, not not Oasis. Um, nobody else is there except for the bartender and the guy at the door, and we had to say to this guy, "Hey, um, aren't you supposed to have like a poster or something?" And he didn't know, so he had to go talk to his manager. And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, let me get those." They were in the back room. He pulls them out. They're fine quality prints of the uh, the cover of this this collection, with all of the band's signatures also just pre printed on them. They they aren't real signatures, and I was just like, "What the fuck did I just do?" But this is pretty cool. I'm gonna frame it for a hundred and forty dollars. Which is what I did. Jesus. Apparently frames in 1998 were higher than they are now. Yeah. But no, I, I went and I got it professionally framed with a, a professional mat sizing, all that shit. And where is that picture now? Uh, in my garage. I th- honestly, <laughs> honestly, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. It's in my garage and there is pigeon poop on it that I have yet to clean off. <laughs> this story... Because I lived it as hearing about it and worrying for your safety because we were living as friends together at the time. This story represents to me a realization. This story represents to me a downfall. This story is Eddie the Cruisers one and two in that whatever the band, and again, this is an outsider looking in because the band doesn't mean as much to me as it does to you. That one album has three songs that mean a lot to me. But this to me was... All right, you had your run, you're done. <laughs> and what better way to show the big, your biggest, most de- dedicated fan, Bob Canning, that you're that you're done, than to sh- send him off to who knows where to get a rinky-dink facsimile of a poster <laughs> with two other people that basically demonstrates the fandom of Oasis past. Yeah. And I love this fucking story because this album, it's whatever this album is, we can talk about, it, but I just love it because you're still a fan and you sure. stuck with them and they mean something to you. And it's not just that they're the biggest band in the world. It's not just that they have screaming fans. And, and I know you've said you've seen them. So it's not like you had to fight crowds to see them. Then you have since they are your there were your favorite band. And I feel like this story and this experience demystifies something, (laughs) which maybe is what we need to do with things we love. It knocks the pedestal down. And maybe you weren't doing this again. I'm projecting a little bit. It's like, 
they're not a social phenomenon now. They're just a band. And being just a band is far more impactive. Because a social phenomenon, everybody bites into shares and says the same thing. It's Watchmen in 2009 when everybody had the fucking book and everyone was suddenly in the comics. You hate that. Well, I, I, it's childish. I, I shouldn't because that's how we get these things out there. And that's how Oasis was able to make more albums because they had a fan base. But the relationship, I think we need to be reminded sometimes that our relationship with the music is with the music. And it's personal. And it's not. It's life-changing for us, but it's not world-changing. Yeah. A bartender who forgot why he was there <laughs> can't take away from you that this means something to you and only you. Like, how much better to hear that album? I'm assuming you listen to it. You're talking about this night? This listening yeah. party? I got my poster, saw what the situation was, and left. So you didn't hear the album that night? No. I didn't need to. I mean, they're all B-sides that I already had. Oh, okay. So I was just there for the poster. <laughs> Had the vibe been different? I, I mean, I was prepared to hang out with a bunch of Oasis fans. And that wasn't about to happen. So so I left. I think it's it, it's an evolution because I still have, and I don't see myself dropping, the filter of this period of culture that I love is how I view the world. It's the language I understand. It's the words I understand. It's a touch point. What I have done is I've gotten past the point of what I like is all that matters. Cause that was exhausting. And I did that. I'm, oh God, it's so it exhausting. Is, and it was, it was briefly <laughs> fulfilling. And the sad thing with that, it's also how I met a lot of people. It was a social tool and I can see how I could easily do that on Twitter or Facebook now too. It is a tool. I've gotten past that, but I've, only gotten past that because I've gotten older. I've only gotten past that because it's exhausting. And I've only gotten past it because I no longer work and hang out in coffee shops. I've removed myself from these environments. So I don't have that anymore, but I do still have that filter. I don't think that's a bad thing. I have my fears of the present and being older in the present, but... And you weren't saying it was a bad thing. It is a selfish thing. But I, I don't I don't think it's as damaging a selfish thing as it used to be because it, you know, I'm not walking off a roof, but to take it away, to take away those memories, and I guess this is what I'm struggling with. And you said a few things that I'm going to continue to struggle with. Clinging to these memories is a problem, but I think I prefer that problem because <laughs> I'm not sure the, the other side at the moment. I don't know the other point of reference without it. Yeah, you know what? It it is a good problem, and and I I try and be I try I try and look at the problem you've just defined, and say, you know what? I, I have been given the enormous gift of getting to of getting to spend a year and a half going across, which is how long I I was on book tour, uh, going across the country and talking about talking happily about a time in life most people hated. Um, and that and that is a really good thing because because I, I, I didn't have a great adolescence and, and I, I, I when I was 25 I could very much see how it could have ruined me um, had I not somehow reconciled it and I'm not saying I'm doing that for every John Hughes fan that I meet you know at a bookstore in Denver or Tulsa or something like that but to engage in the act of taking something joyous serene comforting, um, peaceful from that period in one's life, I think is a good, is healing. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, and, and yes, people, people, 70% of the people who pick up Brat Pack America, um, say to themselves, 
God, this takes me down memory lane. And I'm so excited to watch these movies again and share them with my kids. And you know what? Fine. Good. 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 Like, like that, that, that's so much better. That's so much better than like, I picked up your book and was disappointed by it and, you know, and left it at the bus stop somewhere. Um, That's not 30%. uh, I'm sure the math doesn't work out there. That can't be. (laughs) No, 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 that's not 30%. But like, 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 to, to, to have someone finish your book and, and have, a, have a, a next positive action to take is, is, is better than – as an author, you, you, are, you, have really, you have really summited a, a, a tall peak if that has happened. Um, and so I, I, try, I try and be very grateful for that. Um, but I, I, the other part of it is I just try, I just try and be honest with, with what I was trying to say about these movies, which is I think – I think the reason they're amazing is just much, much bigger than my than my pleasant memories of them. I regret, and you shouldn't regret things in life, but I do. I regret. Why not? That's the definition of the word. You can't. <laughs> that's, that's, the that's fine. Well, I do. I regret that I didn't um, give it a chance. That I didn't believe that it was something a person could do with their life. Uh, I I listened to too many. Adults trying to convince me to get a real job and to go to a real school and take real classes. Um, and so... You still went to Emerson, by I the did. Way. And while I was there, I was told to take an accounting class. And it was very hard to explain that Emerson did not have an accounting class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... I was, uh, yeah. Um, and then, uh. yeah, and then it's like, oh, I, I'm going to form a, a comedy troupe with my friends. Well, first you got to get health care, though. You got to get health care. So do that first. Well, okay. Well, I'm, I've been working on this art. It's like, oh, okay. But, you know, make sure you put some money into savings. So I would always listen to that, that, uh, that angel on my shoulder, I guess, uh, the, the conscious, conscience of my, my family trying to, to make sure I did the right thing. I'm making air quotes on podcasting. Podcasting air quotes. Um, we'll take your word. And um, I regret that I didn't. And that's why with my kids, and I've talked to my wife about this, as they get older and they decide that there's something they want to try if they really want to do something, my motto for them is no plan B. Because my plan B became my plan A, and I want their, they, I want them not to have something to fall back on. If they're going to do it, go and do it. If they fail, they fail. But they tried, and I I regret that I didn't fully try. Regardless of that, at a time in my life where comic books mattered to me, which has been my whole life, but when that was starting, there was an individual out there who shared this thought and shared it with me and shared it gleefully. Marvel Comics could tell dark stories. The X-Men were not rah-rah fun. Jean Grey's death is not an enjoyable romp, but Stanley could talk about it still and could still just love comics. It wasn't all solemn with the string music and the gray tones and the, the, the weight of a heavy, this is important film trailer that you know precedes and promotes most movies now, so we know that there's some weight to it. He loved this shit. And I don't say shit like it doesn't have value. I say shit where it's just like it was whacked. Crazy storytelling, pulpy material. A comic book is a pulpy thing. And he loved it. He didn't mind the, 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 the poor qual- printing quality, the staples that came out. The, 
leaps of faith one has to make for these characters to remain ageless. The, the, the sheer fact that they're wearing spandex costumes, operating things called ultimate nullifiers, and, and battling and combating people called Absorbing Man and Annihilus. This was all just fun to say. Fun to talk about. And we know this. I know this because it's how I talk in the world. I'm doing a fucking podcast week to week talking about how all this fun stuff from childhood impacts me now. But even outside of that podcast, I just love talking about this stuff. Comic books, superheroes, supervillains, superpowers, crossovers, limited series, classic stories, one-shots, what-ifs, splash pages, the Marvel Age, Marvel Fanfare, Marvel Comics Presents, Marvel Team-Up, blah, blah, blah. I just love talking about this because I enjoy it, and it brings joy into me, and I want to share that joy by speaking about it. And that is what Stan Lee is, was, is. I don't know how to do this part when someone has died. But Stan Lee, because he didn't write many comics in my lifetime. He wrote a shit ton before I was born that mean the world to the world. He did write a pretty impressive Silver Surfer story, one of my favorite stories called Parable. He wrote that. But I knew him as a personality. I knew him as a creator. And I could go back and read his stories. And I do. I have collections that I love reading of his stories. But the fact of the matter is, he had an unbridled love for this world, this medium, these characters that he could just share. He loved talking Marvel comics. Excelsior, True Believer, Striking the Poses of Spider-Man. It all can seem gimmicky, but none of us think it's gimmicky. Because this man loved it and felt no shame in it. He was an adult man. He was a millionaire. He was probably a ladies' man. He was a liberal man. He was an open-minded man. He was a mature man. He was a man who knew, you know, he was a cutthroat publisher, probably. He was a guy who knew how to fight the deadline to make a story work. He knew the tricks of the trade. He knew how to publish something. He knew the value of producing. He knew all the commercial stuff that bogs us down, but he also just loved what he fucking lived. From age 17, when he was cleaning out ink wells at his first year at Timely Comics, to this goddamn year when he turned 95. I don't know if Stanley ever had a job that wasn't in some way connected to this thing that he loved, comic books. Fuck, why wouldn't I want that? <laughs> I would love that. I don't have that necessarily. So I, I, what do I have? I have the ability as a 43-year-old to talk and interact and discuss and understand the world <laughs> through the filter of this thing I'm passionate about. Comic books, cartoons, superheroes. I can talk about those things because they're fun. I can talk about those things because they matter. And I can talk about those things because I didn't go to sports or politicians or real-world heroes or religious icons. I went to my folks a little bit, but mostly as a child, I went to superheroes. And the stories they had, the fucking Silver Surfer, Nightcrawler, 
Moon Knight, Spider-Man, Storm. I went to these characters to learn about people. I loved what I learned. And I translated that into being and talking and living to the point now that I've got fucking issues of Dazzler framed on my wall. And I've got a Daredevil keychain that I can play with while I'm recording. And I've got long box after long box after long box of polybagged yellowing comics that I've read multiple times when I've been sick or feeling good. And I've got a video game that pits Marvel characters against Capcom characters. And I've got more action figures. And I've got more art on the wall. And I've got more things that scream, show, and display Marvel Comics characters. That means something to me. That it becomes my language, my way of interacting. What this podcast has always been about is how is it that I can live like Stan Lee? Embracing these things that aren't childish, aren't nostalgia, aren't ridiculous. They're all three of those things. But in addition to that, they are fun and that matters. It might not be why do these things matter to me. It might just be these things are fun. And the fact that comic books and comic book characters and the stories these characters tell in these comic books are fun means something. And it's okay that it means something. And no one could have taught the world that. Except Stan Lee. So that was the whole year. That was 2008. Well, in bits and pieces and uh, selections and out of sequence and... You know, a lot happened this year that wasn't about us talking about the pop culture of a prior century. But, uh, you know, regardless, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to that recap. Thank you for listening all year. Um, It's been fun doing the show. We're going to continue to do it. We'll be back uh, momentarily into the new year of 2019, hopefully next week, uh, Bob and myself. In the interim, uh, in addition to having hopefully an okay, safe-ish start to the new year, I don't know what people say, so happy new year to you there. Um, If you want to support this show, got some things planned for the coming years. If you want to support it, continue supporting it, be a part of it, whatever, check out 20popcast.com. That's the official website of the show. Uh, The most recent episode is always up there streaming, as well as links to all of our past episodes. You can also find links there to subscribe to us on uh, iTunes, which I guess actually you've been called Apple Podcasts for a year and a half, Uh, Stitcher, Google Play, all sorts of uh, podcast catchers. You can also, what else can you do? You can follow us. You can follow us there um, on Twitter at 20popcast, on Instagram also at 20popcast, and just, you know, see what we've done, see what we're doing. I'm in a rush right now because I would like to get this up before the new year hits. We'll see the reality that hits you, the listener, but uh, we'll be back soon. But until then, thanks for always listening to the show when you do, and when you don't, I can't control that. Uh, Happy New Year! Today we're going to talk about War Games. Yes, War Games, the 1983 uh, Matthew Broderick 
Ali Sheedy, apparently Dabney Coleman and James Tolkien, starring a film directed by John Badham, who when I looked Dabney up, I realized... Coleman. Man, he I had a lot so. of... He had a nice career going. He had in the 80s. He was in a lot of things. He was in... I yeah. was just reading the other day in the AV Club, they were talking about Cloak and Dagger. He was in right. that. Uh, a little while back when we were talking about ER, I think we mentioned Man of the People. That's a show of his. He he, he was in a lot of films, too. I mean, I, I he's a com- in comic nine actor, Nine to right? Five, wasn't he? Wasn't he the bad boss in Nine to Five? I, I think so. I've never seen Nine to Five, but yes, he was Buffalo Bill. He, uh, what else is he in? I think he's in Tootsie. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, I, I think... I think he he was the Godfather and the Godfather. I, I think he's Judas he's and Jesus Christ superstar. Flight of the Navigator too, right? He's in Flight of the Navigator. I think he's the Rocketeer. Um, he's two of the Gremlins and Gremlins, and then he's two of the Gremlins and Gremlins Two: The New Batch. I mean, he's in a lot of shit. He was in Family Ties. He was on Cheers. He was in Silver Spoons. He voiced some of the cats on Heathcliff, like some of the cats, but not any of the main cats. Devin Coleman's had a pretty big... He's in Tron. Who he's was in Tron he Legacy. in War Games? He, was the, he generally plays the the the, uh, the enemy, the, the antagonist, right? And he was the uh, bad guy. I don't guy. know. And, uh, Cloak and Dagger, he's a hero. I think a lot of times he plays like an, a hard-to-like character. I don't know if he's always the villain. Mm. This is odd. I did not think we were going to ever be talking about Tabney Coleman for sentences. Well, this is what titles. happens when... when we just, you know, turn that mic on and hit record. 